I know for myself, um, for being in ministry as long as, as I have been, there are times in which when we come to the Lord's table, for that's what uh, we're going to be doing at the um, conclusion of our service, it can sometimes feel like, though it's never intended to be, something that we just tack on to the end of the service. Because it is something to where the Lord has commissioned us to partake together, but it is something to where the Lord has given us an object lesson for us to remember. And so when we partake at the table, it's a time of remembrance. It's a great time of reflection because we get to see where we are in our walk with Christ, to see what the Lord wants to do through our lives and through his people. And it's a time of examination that if we are a believer, we get to see whether or not we're worthy to partake because we're told to examine ourselves. And if we're not a believer, then the Spirit of God can convict our heart as we don't partake in those things to, to see how the Lord is showing us where we are falling short, where we are sinning, and how much his standard needs to be upheld. And so it is a time to where that we're going to be looking at through we're going to be looking at through the Lord's table, but through what Christ has done on the cross, because we have a love relationship with Christ that grows, that deepens every day. Because we just saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, in, in verses 8, Peter is amazed that they love Christ, but they've never seen Christ. Because he saw the glories and the miracles of Christ and what he accomplished. He's seen him die upon the cross, and he's seen the church to be born. And those who came after him, those who did not see him, he's amazed how people can be saved and has stilled a deep affection for the risen Savior. And so we come to remember why Jesus died for us and to deepen that love relationship that we have for him. Because even the Apostle John tells the Ephesian church in the opening chapters of Revelation to return to their first love. And so when it comes to Christ, I never can hear enough about him, to learn about him, to see what he accomplishes through his people. Until one day, that love relationship will be consummated to where each one of us will be able to get to see him face to face. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen? You can say, you can say amen. It's okay. Um, and so it's going to be a glorious day. And so we're going to be looking at, at a very special set of passages that will examine our Lord's seven statements that he made on the cross. And these seven statements are amazing because they sort of en encapsulate our Lord's ministry and his heart. It leaves a record for us, not only how he felt about us, but what he meant um, when he accomplished the sacrifice that he would do for us. And so it is through these seven statements that our Lord made on the cross that I believe that it can be life-changing for us this morning because we need to be reminded of, the, of those things. And to be reminded of those things is more than just around uh, Easter time and Good Friday time. But it is a time to where as we come to partake, we come to remember and we need to remember why he died. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. 
And so it is through these seven statements, all four of the Gospels have record of. Three of these statements concern men. Three of these statements were addressed to God himself. And one of the statements were addressed to everything in creation. And so I hope you have your Bible. If not, you can take the one in front of you. But we're going to be looking at a number of passages this morning. And the first passage that I want to look at is to set the scene, a scene that we all know, but we need to set the scene to be reminded in our own mind's eye. So turn to John chapter 19. And this is the scene that that we've all heard and we, um, we talk often around Easter time. But in John chapter 19, beginning at verse 16, we see the scene set. It says in verse 16, So he then handled him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it was written, The Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. This scene, as we all know, is one, is one of the most important scenes in all of human history. It takes place in the nation of Israel. They were under Roman occupation. And just outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem, there is a place called Golgotha. On a hill that looks like a skull. Its Hebrew name, as, as we see there, is Golgotha, meaning skull. And I found something because if I was playing Bible trivia, I would have bet the farm on, um, does the Bible use the word Calvary? It does not. The, um, the word Calvary comes from the Latin name, and it is only found one place in the King James Version in, in this one chapter in Luke 23, but it's not found in the original. It's called Skull, and that's, and that's the place. Not that Calvary's wrong, but it's just wasn't there. I would have lost, and people would look at the pastor. You should know these things, and it's like, I, I don't know. And so it was a hill used by the Romans for a place of public execution of those who are guilty of the state, those who are guilty of religious crimes, and so people were, were made to be... Uh, Object lessons of those, if you were to get out of line, this would happen to you. And so it was the morning just prior to Passover, which was to be taking place that evening. And here we find three men who are sentenced to death. And things needed to get hurried along because crucifixion could take a number of days. But everything needed to be completed before 6 p.m. of that one day. And here we find our Lord being crucified between two criminals, one on either side. And while he hangs for these hours, he has seven statements. He has been silent before those who, um, since, since the garden, 
And these seven statements really summarizes his ministry. And for some this morning, when we view these seven statements, they will begin to develop a love relationship with Christ that they never had before. Because these seven statements are life-changing. To others here this morning, they're going to renew our love for him. Because then after we look at these things, we'll be partaking at the table. For others, they need a deepening of that love. And so this is a time of preparation before we come to partake with the bread and then with the cup. And so look at Luke chapter 23, if you would. And we're going to look at these seven statements. Each one of these seven statements could be a sermon within itself. So we have seven of them in the time that we have. So we must move along sort of quickly. But these seven statements, I think, really summarizes why our Lord came in the attitude that he had at the time in which he died. And so the first statement is found in verses 33 and 34. The first statement is that, that he makes on the cross is a statement of forgiveness. It's a statement of forgiveness. In verse 33, we find this. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one to the right and one to the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, in verse 34, forgive them. For they know not what they do. This first cry is a statement of forgiveness that he's addressing to the Father himself. After being tortured since, uh, since the late hours of, uh, of that evening till this point, it was, um, it was one in which he had to endure all of the physical tortures, and now he's nailed to a cross fighting to breathe with all of the scourging and all of the beating that he had to endure. And during this time, he makes a statement of forgiveness to his tormentors. This statement here is actually a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 in verse 12, which says, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So he is there, he is interceding, and he asked the Father to forgive them. And so there's a couple of things that sort of stands out from this statement. First of all, we see that this is a statement where Jesus is asking the Father for forgiveness. He says, Father, forgive them. On no prior or previous occasion did Christ make this request for the Father. Never before had he asked the Father to forgive others for their sins. He was the one that forgave sins. The woman in one case in in Luke chapter 7 and verse 48, who washes his feet at the house of Simon, he says to them, and everyone hears to their astonishment, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews knew that the only one who could forgive sins was God. Because in Mark chapter 2 and verse 7, the religious leaders were right when they said, who can forgive sins but God? So only God is capable of, of actually forgiving sins. And as God was beginning to pour out his wrath, his anger upon Jesus, because there he was acting as our substitute, He was the just 
who was about to die for the unjust. He was dying in the place of all those who were to put their faith upon him. And so he was our representative, no longer in the place of authority where he was before, where he would exercise his own divine prerogatives. He was under judgment for God because of the sins that I have committed. And so he asked the Father to forgive his his tormentors, both the Jews who turned their back upon the Messiah and to the Roman soldiers who were carrying out the requests of, of Pilate. And so the picture you need to put in your mind's eye is is that that is hard for anyone to do. Those people who tormented you, especially those who you knew, deserved to be killed because he was the innocent one who did no wrong. All those who beat him, to those who whipped him, to those who nailed him to the cross, for all those who rejected him, to all those who mocked him, even those who yelled, crucify him. He he asked God, his father, to forgive them. So we see that this is a statement that he asked the father to forgive. But not only that, secondly, we see that this is a statement where Christ is interceding for sinners. Even though he was suffering himself on our behalf, he lifts up a prayer request on behalf of those who um, who he was paying the penalty for their sin. It is the task in which our Lord continues even to this day because he is our advocate. I want you to look at, at a passage. Turn over to the right to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. We get to see this very aspect of our Lord being our advocate and where he is, he is interceding for his people. 1 John, chapter 2, we find in verse 1 where John is writing this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And look at verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's a big $10 word, but it's more than just a theological word. That's actually a biblical word, but we're going to talk more about that in a moment. And not for ourselves only, but also for those of the whole world. That word there, as we're going to see, means a complete satisfaction of God's wrath. Propitiation. There are five syllables there. There aren't that many words in the Bible that has five syllables, but that one does. And Christ was the complete satisfaction for our sins and is now our advocate. He acts on behalf of those who he's acting on behalf of. And so that is what the word advocate means. He is someone who comes to the aid and he pleads to the case to the judge. And so the advocate offers support, strength, and counsel and intercedes for us when necessary. So this is a statement in which he's interceding for those who don't deserve it. But thirdly, this is also a statement where we see the hardness and blindness of the human heart. There he says to the Father, not only forgive them, but he gives the reason why. For they do not know what they are doing. 
It wasn't that they were enemies of, uh, that the enemies of Christ were ignorant of the fact of cru- uh, crucifixion. They knew full well what they were doing. They knew full well that they wanted nothing to do with him. They would rather have a lifetime criminal Barabbas than they would Christ, who healed all, um, uh, just about all the sins in, in Israel, one who, who was there to help. But they cried out, crucify him. And so they knew full well that Pilate even found no fault with him. And when you begin to tack what they knew uh, about Jesus, because uh, Jesus was around them, but you add to the fact with all of the Old Testament prophecies, which says there would be one that would come and would pay for your sins, they wanted nothing to do with him. And so what our Lord meant here is that they were actually ignorant of the enormity of their crime. What they failed to see was that they were putting to death God himself. This is, a, this is not an emphasis of what they did not know, but they did not know what they were doing. Because they should have known. Three and a half years, Jesus was there showing them who he was through the miracles and the message that they were coming about. He was trying to lay down the foundation that he was the promised Messiah that the forefathers talked about. And even like when John chapter 7 and verse 46, when he spoke, even his harshest critics said, never has a man spoken the way this Man speaks. And so they should have seen his perfect life that he lived. But they were blind. Their hearts were hardened. And their blindness and hardness is inexcusable because they should have known. Because they wanted nothing to do with this man. And so we get to see that this is a, that this is a statement of forgiveness that he makes to those who did not deserve it. But look at verse 42 of Luke chapter 23. We find a second statement that our Lord makes. And this second statement is a statement of salvation. Because they deserved God's wrath that he was taking upon them because of their sin. Because of their rejection. This is a statement that shows that God will save those who are unworthy who turn to him. And so this is in response to a request made by the dying thief next to him. Look at verse uh, 39, if you would. It says, One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He said, If you claim to be Messiah, um, save yourself from the cross and save us along with it, and you'll prove who you are. But in verse 40, so it's essentially the, uh, the, the mocking of all mockings. In verse 40, but the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me 
in what? Paradise. Earlier that day, the, that thief was hurling abuse at him too. He may have seen some of Jesus' miracles and at least heard who he was and what, and, and what he was trying to equate himself to be. But the other criminals kept hurling abuse at him. And he says, we deserve to die. He doesn't deserve to die. So he saw his sinful states and he cries out, Lord, remember me. This is a fulfillment of why our Lord came. In Matthew 1 and verse 21, when Gabriel appears to Joseph and he tells him not to put Mary away and he makes a statement. He says that um, the son that Mary would, uh, would have, that she will bear a son in his name and call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so, though people were saved during our Lord's ministry, this is, the, this is showing that he will one day fulfill what he came to do, that his sacrifice would be fully accepted. And he, and he tells the thief upon the cross, you will be with me in paradise. And it's inter- interesting to note that his conversion here to faith came before all of the supernatural events that was going to take place that day. He just saw his sinfulness, and he saw the Lord's righteousness and him being persecuted, and he saw that he could do nothing, and he cries out to him, Lord, remember me. And so this was before all of the miracles, the three hours of darkness that would take place in the middle of the day. It was before the triumphal cry, it is finished. It was before the, te- the, the veil at the temple would be uh, ripped in two. It was before the massive earthquake. It was before the centurion's confession, truly, this was the Son of God. So God displayed his saving act before everyone that he put upon display that this thief would cry out, Lord, remember me. And so he saw his utter loss, lostness. And when you begin to look at this, it is one of the great verses to sort of underscore the fact of justification by faith alone. Because he could do no works to save himself. The only thing he could do was cry out in mercy to God, remember me. And so that is what he does. And we see this all the time. You don't have to turn there, but remember the story about Jonah the reluctant prophet, to where God tells the prophet Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, to the people that Israel hates, and they were a thorn in their side, and they were tormentors through their entire relationship with them, and preach the gospel, that God God would come and bring judgment. And in Jonah chapter 3, the people and the king hears the message and they, uh, they know that they're going to be judged. And the king sends out a proclamation. And he says this to the people. To put on sackcloth and, and ashes. And turn from their wickedness and from their violence that they do with their hands. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 3. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger. So that we will not perish. They heard the message, God's going to wipe you out. And they were convicted that the God of Israel, 
The God who saved the nation of Israel from uh, the Egyptians, brought them into the land, that that testimony would still burn within their hearts, that now that judgment was going to come upon them. They saw their sin, and they had nowhere to turn except to cry out in mercy. If there's a way, and here's here's Tim's paraphrase, who knows, God may save us. And that's what the king says. And God did save them. And that's what the sinner does when they come to Christ. They see their sin. That's exactly what Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And for those who don't know our Lord as their Savior and realize the fact that if they were to die today, they have no hope on where they would go. They hope that they might be in heaven one day. But they can know today when they see their sin that God will forgive them of their sin. But not only that, secondly, this is a statement which gives us a glimpse on how heaven is. Because he tells the thief on the cross, not only today will you be with me, that not in some future date, but today you'll be with me, but also you will be with me in paradise. Why is that important? Well, in the, um, in the Septuagint, or the Greek transl- uh, translation of the Hebrew, it uses the word garden, which is the same word as Eden. And so it's a s- synonym for, for heaven, if you would. That same Greek word found in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 4, Paul uses it for the third heaven. And so today we'll be, you'll be with me in heaven. And it will be a garden. And it's a paradise. And so that is what all, all of God's people looks forward to. To be with our Lord in a place to where there's no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more trials, no more pain. What a great day that will be. Amen? Amen. But yet there's a third statement that we make, because time is going by quickly. It's found in John chapter 19. So turn with me to the book of John, chapter 19. We find the third statement given by our Lord while he hung upon the cross. This third statement is a statement of affection. We get to see that while he was enduring the suffering and agony that he was going through, He not only fulfilled his high priestly prayer in John 17 to where um, he asked the father that none would slip out of his hands, but he had an affection for his mother. Look at verse 23, if you would, of of John 19. And we see this third statement of, that is a statement of affection. He says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts apart for every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them. From my clothes they cast lots. Look at verse 25. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Colopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciples took her into his own household. So the the third statement that our Lord makes upon the cross while he is in agony is a statement of affection to his mother. And it wasn't because that he didn't... uh, that he, um, that, he, um, that he didn't want to forget about her. He wanted to remember and make sure that her needs were to be fulfilled because he is there hanging upon the cross. He was the promised one to save Israel, but now he hangs to die, and all that she could do is watch him die. And that's no place or no scene for a mother to see. Because for those who have had children, you just yearn for the protection of your children. And it pretty much starts on day one, even before they're born, till, um, until you pass that there is a desire for them to be safe. But now she has to see him hardly even being recognizable, hearing all the vilest words being hurled at him, seeing her own people. And family turned from him. And so from this one statement, we see that this is a fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy that is found in Luke chapter 2 and verse 35. Because when Jesus was only eight days old in Luke chapter 2, Simeon tells Mary in verse 35 that a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be uh, revealed. And so that sword was now piercing Mary's heart as she watched her firstborn die. And so Jesus is hanging there, and he sees her mother, his mother, and he entrusts her physical care to the disciple that he most loved. Secondly, we also see that Jesus was still honoring his parents, which is a fulfillment of one of the Ten Commandments, um, which was a requirement for one to always honor their parents. And so the commandment is to honor them. It doesn't end at the age of 21 when one moves out and doesn't end when one gets married. It implies as long as they live, honor your parents. And so he wanted to make sure that his mother would be taken care of. And it's interesting because it doesn't necessarily mean that the other people in her family didn't care. But they would probably get saved after the fact because they're not mentioned at all in any of our Lord's ministry. Even Jesus' brother gets saved later on. And so he wanted to make sure that her needs would continue to be met. But there's a fourth statement that that he goes on to make. This is a statement of anguish. It's found in Matthew chapter 27 in verse 46. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 in verse 46, and we get to see the anguish or part of the anguish that he is going through. 
This is a statement to where I think that we barely will understand or grasp in this lifetime. And even in the next life, we will probably have a hard time grasping the implication of what is taking place with this statement. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, we find this. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have to pause there because that is a statement I could hardly comprehend. I can understand the physical suffering that he had been going through, through the beatings and the scourgings and the crown thorns and carrying, um, carrying the cross to the place of the skull and, and then being nailed to the cross, all the physical aspects and just him trying to breathe every breath thereafter was agonizing. But this is more than just a, the physical torment that he is going through. This is a spiritual torment that he is going through. This is actually a fulfillment of the prophecy found in Psalm 22 and verse 1, where Psalm, Psalm 22 begins by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back from me? This is a, great, this is a statement of great mystery. This is a statement that shows how evil and destructive sin is. This is a statement to show how serious God deals with sin. Why do I say that? Because you have to think of what is going on spiritually. Here you have Jesus not only suffering physically, but you have the second person of the Godhead who was in perfect communion with the first person of the Godhead from eternity past. Now that relationship, that love relationship that always was there, that was, de- that was, that was dearing to both, was severed. It was cut. It was destroyed. And God the Father poured out his wrath, his anger on his most beloved son to be that Passover lamb for us, to be the one who is our substitute. It's bad enough he took my place with my sin, but he took your sin too, and all of the sin of every believer who would ever live. And, he's, and his relationship that he has with Father was severed. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm sorry, I, I don't comprehend that. I don't. The agony and the suffering that brought. Here God was pouring out his anger upon him. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, one of the great verses that Paul writes, he said, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. It wasn't that Christ be, became a sinner, because that's not the picture. But he took my sin upon him and was given over to him so that his perfect life would be given over to me. That is the doctrine of imputation. So that when God sees me, he doesn't see my sin anymore. All that guilt and all that shame was forgiven. All he sees is Christ's perfect life. So here, God treats Jesus as if he was a sinner, though he was not, so that God can treat you as if you are righteous and you are not, because we still sin. We have our sins forgiven, oh yes, but we still sin. And that's amazing. And so... Our Lord is suffering here, and he is suffering because his relationship is severed with the Father because of his immense love that he had for me. But look at verse, 20, at, at verse 28 of John chapter 19. We see the fifth statement. The fifth statement is a statement of suffering that he is going through. In verse 28, we find this. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things has already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, saying, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour, sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. This is not water mixed with wine. It um, it's mixed with myrrh, which was a deadening, a deadening agent, if you would. And so here we have this drink to prolong one's life to help increase the pain and increase the torture. And so it, it is a statement that fulfills Psalm 69 and verse 21, where it says that, he, that they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And so we get to see our Lord here suffering as much as he could suffer. And so it's exactly what we've been seeing in 2 Peter chapter 2, his suffering. Because there in verse, uh, in verse 21 and following, Peter has been telling them that you're suffering for a reason. And how can you live out of faith while you're being persecuted? So he writes 1 Peter, this is how you can live out of faith while being persecuted. And one of the reasons is that he gave us an example to follow, and that is Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. But he left us an example to follow in his steps. So it is a statement that underscores the suffering that he is going through. But look at verse 30, if you would. Of John chapter 19. There's a sixth statement as we hurry along. We get to see in verse 30, the sixth statement is a statement of victory. You go through all this, this torture and the agony, and now in verse 30, there is a statement of victory. This is one to where as we come to partake at the table, it makes our hearts just rejoice. 
It's a statement of victory. There we have, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. If Bodhi Bakum was here, he would pause, a long pause, and look, you just got to pause. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's the end of the sixth hour. The extent of his suffering was now complete. It fulfills the statement of why God has forsaken him. Because he's not going to be forsaken any longer because it is complete. This this is a statement that shows that God's wrath is now completely satisfied. The statement there, it is finished, carries the idea of fulfilling one's task. And in this context, it refers to the complete Redemptive work that the Lord has, has experienced was, bought, was brought to a completion. It's paid in full. It be done. The wrath that God poured upon him was completely satisfied. Now me, I don't understand that. Because the sins that I had done needed to, needed to be paid for for an eternity. He paid for it because he had the infinite capacity to pay for not only my sins, but your sins. And then it is done. It is finished. God accepted Jesus' work that he paid for sins. I want you to look at Romans chapter 5 for, for a moment, which helps underscore this one very fact. Because the eternal hell was destined for me to endure in eternity. That's how much wrath was there, and it was completely and utterly satisfied. That's what the word propitiation means. There's a complete satisfaction of God's wrath. Romans 5, I want you to look at verse 6. There are four things that stands out to where we were lacking before we got saved. Look in verse 6. It says, For while we were still helpless... At the time Christ died for the ungodly. That was me. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even to die. But God demonstrates his own agape to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Man does not come to God on their own because Paul says we lack four things. In verse 6, it says we lack the strength. He says we're helpless. At the end of verse 6, we lack the merit. Because we were ungodly. We were unable to help ourselves. We were helpless. And the deeds that we gunned, they, were not, uh, they weren't godly at all. Verse 8, it says that we lacked the righteousness. We were sinners. And then in verse 9, we lacked the peace with God because we were enemies. But in verse 8, but God demonstrates his own agape love, his unconditional love towards us, that while I was most unlovable, 
sinners, Christ died for us. Not only was God's wrath completely satisfied, but also this is a statement that tells us the thoroughness of our salvation. It is finished. I can't lose it. I can't, I, I can't lose my salvation. It's all have been completely satisfied. If you like, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes a tremendous statement on how thorough this is. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says that when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, heart, of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of our transgressions, having canceled out Wiped out. It is clean. The certificate of debt consisting the decrees against us. That was our sins, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Our past sins are gone. All of them. Our present sins, they're gone. Our future sins, they're gone. It is finished. We have been declared righteous already. That's justification because we're freed from the penalty of sin. That's God's wrath. Currently in our life, we have been given sanctification. We're freed from the power of sin. We're growing in our faith, becoming more godly. And even our future sins are forgiven. One day we'll be free from the presence of sin. That's glorification. And so we get to see the thoroughness of our salvation. And then we get to see the permanence of our salvation. They're gone. It's finished. I can't, I, I can't change my mind. Not that I would want to. Because that's, that's exactly what Romans says in, in Romans 8. You know, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing in the heavenlies, nothing down here. Nothing's on, on earth. There's no power that can separate us from the love of God. Not even me. That's why I, I have a hard time with people who believe that you can lose your salvation. You can't lose it. I, I didn't merit it in the first place. I've been declared righteous. Justification. My sins were placed on his account. Past sins, present sins, future sins. They're gone. Um, that certificate of debt is, has been dealt with. When our Lord cried out, it is finished. And then lastly, there's a seventh statement that he makes. I need for you to turn back to Luke chapter 23. It's a statement of contentment found in verse 46. Beginning at verse 44, but it's found in verse 46. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, says his final words before he dies, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a quote from Psalm 31 in verses 1 through 5. 
And I just have to read this because he quotes it, but I can relate to it. It says in the first five verses of Psalm 31, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength and a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. We see that this is a statement that our Lord makes of Jesus' authority. The verb there to hand over, uh, the, the verb there to commit means to hand over. Jesus is the one who is in control of when he dies and not anyone else. He's been on the cross for six hours, which isn't all that long for crucifixion. And when his time was fulfilled and the Father was satisfied, he commits his life and he breathed his last. One commentator said, uh, said this. He says, the cup is drained. The storm of wrath has spent itself. The darkness is past. And the Savior seen once more in communion with the Father, never to be broken again. And so we get to see here, as we partake at the table, huh, it's more than something we tack on every other week um, at the end of a service. It's a time of remembrance. We're commanded to do this. But you know what? As what Peter has been telling us, we need to be remembering certain things. We need to remember our salvation. We need to remember our God. We need to remember that we will be suffering. And here we need to remember the sacrifice that our Lord had made for us. And so there's someone here who has never put their faith in Christ because there's always someone here who's never placed their faith in Christ. Because I know in my life there was a time in which if I were to die today, I could not answer the question, where would you go? I hope I would go to heaven. But I cannot earn salvation. I can't do anything to appease God's wrath. And he is angry at my sin, and my sin needs to be dealt with. But as he told the thief upon the cross... When you see your sin and turn from your sin and cry out, Lord, remember me. You can walk out of this place and to know and have the confidence and the assurance to know that you will be with him in paradise. And so if you don't know that, I want you to see one of the guys who stands in the back with a name tag, and I want you to ask them to open the, uh, their Bible and to show them on how you can have that full assurance. Because you need to leave this place to have that confidence. For others, we come to celebrate that victory, that he is not in the ground. He is risen from the dead, and he is risen indeed. And that should put a renewed love for your Savior in your heart. That he died for me when you realize, 
how often I compromise my own life and my own walk and do things I know I shouldn't do and think of things I, I should not think about. And so we come to examine ourselves to see whether we are, we are worthy. And as a pastor and all the counseling that I, I have done, I know, and, and I'm the new guy here. I'm not even formally here yet. Give me to the end of the year. But um, I'm just a new guy. I don't know what's going on. But I do know that there is someone here who is in habitual sin. It always is. Always. And if you are, stop. Stop. Because that sin that you willingly do, our Lord agonized. And I cannot willingly do more sin and know I'm doing wrong and to know that I heaped more upon him. It's the choice that I make now. Stop. Renew your marriage. Renew your relationship with your family. Most of all, renew your first love relationship that you have with the Lord. Do that. For others, this is a time for us to rejoice. Our Lord loved us so much that we, when we were most unlovable, he loved us. So we remember the bread, this is his broken body, and we remember the bloodshed. But we also remember that blessed assurance to know that Jesus is mine. And we're going to sing that. Take your Bible out to hymn number 345. After we sing. We'll sing the first and the last. You can remain seated. But what a joy.